All right, good morning, everybody. So I'm originally from Denver, Colorado, so I laugh every time people in the desert say they're gonna have a snow machine. <laughs> Never in my life did I even know snow machines existed until I moved here, but I've been here a long time. So we're in 1 Kings chapter eight. Um, the series that we're in is moving through the life of Saul and the life of David, and then now continues into David's son, Solomon. And truth be told, I have now spent a lot of time um, engaging the Bible because I've been in ministry now since I was in college. And when I came to faith, uh, I was told to engage the Bible and I began to engage it. But truth be told, the Old Testament was at the beginning weird to me. And I'm gonna be honest with you, it still is. So every time I read the Old Testament, I have a tendency to go back to Romans chapter 15, verse four. So if you guys are little note takers, you wanna open in your phone, it's a really helpful passage every time you engage the Old Testament to remember. And the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 15, four. He says, for whatever was written in former days, you can put parentheses there, the Old Testament. For whatever was written in former days was written for our, those who are reading now for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Mm -hmm. So these moments that you read in the Old Testament, you're like, this is weird. Like, I don't know what this says about God. We've traced this whole journey and there's wars and interpretation of how they should go into this, trying to establish a nation and to remember every time I'm reading what was written in former days, that through the scriptures and my endurance and encouragement that I get from the scriptures, this is written for this reason, that you and I would have hope. Hope is a really interesting word. It's the word that the Apostle Paul in this same book of the book of Romans says that we can rejoice even in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance Endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope will never put us to shame. So as we read this, I want to pray for that. So let me pray. I know we just took a moment of silence, but let me pray um, around this moment of teaching. God, we just pray right now, and we rejoice. We choose to rejoice in your attention towards us this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would turn our attention to the fact that you pay attention to us. That you see us, God, that you hear us, that you are continually walking with us even when we don't see it and recognize it. So I pray that you would bring to our attention that you are paying attention to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So 1 Kings chapter eight is a long chapter. I want to start at the end. This is not something I typically would ever do in teaching. But this passage, as the temple has been now built, and this focus fundamentally on the Ark of the Covenant, which we're going to get into a minute of a short description of what that is. But this passage ends, and I'm going to read to you from the message, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible, how the very end of this whole chapter stands. It says, this is how Solomon kept the great autumn feast 
So when you slow down and you're engaged in the Bible, one of the best things you can ever do is the same thing English teachers teach us when we begin to learn to read, is immerse yourself in the stories. Stop for a minute when you hear something like, this is how Solomon kept the great autumn. That's the time we're living in now, when we do snow machines and pumpkins (laughs) and all these kinds of things. And feast sounds good if you like food, But a great autumn feast, like an autumn festival, sounds like there's food and there's drink and there's celebration. This is how Solomon, at the end of this chapter, this is how it ends. It ends with how he celebrates the great autumn feast and all of Israel with him. People there all the way from the far northeast, the entrance to the Hamath, to the far southwest, the brook of Egypt, a huge congregation. So a feast, what's another word for a feast? Party. Party, right? There's this huge party. People have come from all over. And he says there's a ton of people at this thing. They started out celebrating for seven days. How long seven days? A week. So they started out celebrating seven days, and then they're like, this isn't enough. So they add another seven days, two weeks of a massive party. Can I get an amen? Let's do it. Right? Let's do it. And then they did it another seven days, exclamation point. Two solid weeks of celebration. Then he let him go. And as he lets him go, it says, they blessed the king and they went home exuberant with heartfelt gratitude for all the good God had done for his servant David and for his people Israel. Sign me up. Right? A two-week party that they're celebrating something so significant that they leave with exuberance, blessing the king. Thank you for that. And they're praising God for what he did through David, who's not even around, and through the people Israel. So just think for a minute, and you can even participate if you're a talker, what do you think happened in those 14 days? Don't be too spiritual. What do you think they did? They're drinking, for sure, right? So if you like wine, if you're a teetotaler, you wouldn't probably like these parties, right? They're drinking, they're celebrating. Here's what I wanna bring to your mind for a minute. There are certain moments where you show up at a moment of hospitality and you walk away and you're like, I don't know what that was, but that was phenomenal. I had this moment where a buddy of mine called me over, and and if this offends anybody, I apologize, but I'm just being true to what happened. So he brings me over, he has kind of this barn, it's in Colorado, which I love. It's during the autumn, interesting enough. And he brings me over and there's a couple of his buddies there, and he has this big setup of whiskeys and all kinds of stuff, and we just sit out. He brings snacks and pours us a little bit of whiskey, and we just sit, and we just start enjoying each other's company. We're laughing and talking and whatever. We're about two and a half hours in, and all of a sudden, he walks back. I didn't know where he went, but he went to a smoker, and he brings like two massive stacks of meat. Now, I'm a typical male, so I'm like, this is unbelievable. And I remember leaving that day, my brother-in-law was with me, and I'm like, whatever that was, I left with exuberance. And I really was thanking God. And I remember telling my wife that night, like, I've got to figure out whatever that was, because I need more of that in my life. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily speaking about whiskey, though that's not untrue. But, but I need more of that in my life. And here's what it was. It was hospitality. 
It was a moment where somebody created space and a place for us to encounter each other. And in the midst of encountering one another in that space and in that place, I encountered God. That's the way this whole passage ends. So what are they celebrating ultimately? What happens? Well, here's the way the chapter starts. King Solomon summons into his presence at Jerusalem, the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the Israelite families to, to, so why did he do this? Why does he summon all the leaders of Israel to bring up the Ark of the Covenant from Zion, the city of David? All the Israelites come together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim in the seventh month. Okay, so they're bringing up the Ark of the Covenant. What's going on here? Never in Israel's history has there been a temple. Okay, so understand this. They're trying to set up a permanent place for God. Now, we could think a permanent place to worship God. That's true. But I want you to see something fundamentally of what's happening here is there was this desire in David, okay, the one we're studying, who Solomon's his son, there was a desire within David to set up a permanent residence. Now, if you understand the history of the Old Testament, there's this reality that moves from the very beginning of the first book of the Bible of Genesis of how God would be with and ultimately, this is a word that's used all throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, that he would dwell with his people. And so along the way, when the nation of Israel is called and promised to Abraham in the Bible, and then it moves forward with Abraham and his children, and they end up in Egypt, and then it gets to the call of this guy Moses that he needs to liberate the Israelites from Egypt. So no matter where you are in your faith journey in this room, you've heard of things like the Prince of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea, maybe. So this moment he calls Moses is to call a people out to lead them out of Egypt, ultimately to form a nation where they're going to be placed in a land permanently. In their wandering journeys, God says, I will dwell with you. And there's this image that the Israelites get in their as they're like this nomadic people, moving, seeking to be obedient to God. Many times they're not, but they're being led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. What were those clouds ultimately? What did they represent? God's presence. The presence of God is always the point. Okay, this is, if, you, if you're a point person, point one, the presence of God always has been the point, and the presence of God will always be the point. Now, before we get to this, before we can really articulate what this is, what the Ark of the Covenant was, was this moment when Moses received the Ten Commandments. He builds this box of acacia wood. And he puts the two stone tablets that he received in the Ten Commandments, and he put them in the stone of acacia wood. This Ark of the Covenant begins to travel with the people of God, representing, this is key, key word, representing the presence of God. So the way they traveled is they set up this tabernacle, which was like basically... 
the tabernacle in their wanderings was like an airstream. Okay, think about like an airstream. Like they traveled and it was kind of the place of worship, but where God dwelt so it could be mobile. And ultimately there's a moment coming when they get into the land where David's like, you don't need an airstream anymore. Like we need to build you a house. That's the temple. So airstream, permanent house that you bought down the road, first built house. That's the way this is ultimately happening. You need a house. Now, let me ask you this question before we get into this deeply. What is the difference between a house and a home? There's a lot of talk in Christian circles, depending upon where you grew up and what kind of tradition you grew up in, about this is the house of God. We'll do moments and offerings, and people will talk about the house of God. This is God's house. Is God ultimately building a house, or is he building a home? Sometimes we can get too scholarly and like, try to search all the scriptures to answer these questions, which is a great thing. But sometimes the greatest answers get in us just being super normal. Like, what is it that I want? Is what I want ultimately a house? Or is what I want a home? And what distinguishes the difference? What happens in this moment when they're trying to bring the ark into a building that's been built, right? So if you go back even to the message um, that John just did in 1 Kings 6, Solomon builds the temple. He builds the house in 6. Then in 7, Solomon builds his own palace. Then he furnishes the temple. Now he comes to this moment and he's like, what's the point of the building, the point of the house? Enter in the Ark of the Covenant. What did the Ark of the Covenant represent? The presence of God. So as they bring it in, there's this whole setup for the Ark to go under these two cherubim. Cherubim is angels. This is the way that the temple was set up and the Ark of the Covenant was always supposed to be there. It's underneath these two cherubim. Then the top of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. And this is where sacrifices began to be made But ultimately, the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. So why in the end was there a sacrificial moment? And we don't have time to get into all of this, but the Old Testament teaches, as does the book of Hebrews, of what's ultimately happening in this moment is where the presence of God is in all of the fire of God's holiness, which is a simple way to say this, God is God. He's not like us. He's God. And God is holy. So the reality of what was happening even at that time, and you're going to see this all throughout the prayers of Solomon here, is that our sin gets in the way of our experience of God's presence. So they begin to shed the blood of bulls and goats. And there was a high priest that was set up through the temple that high priests, not just a priest, many priests would offer sacrifices, but the high priest would go in only one time a year in the Day of Atonement, enter into the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, and offer sacrifices on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people. 
So he began to be this in-between. The high priest represented the people to God and God to the people. And he would create a bloody mess to represent the shedding of blood for sin so that the people might encounter the presence of God. That so that is so important. And I want you to hear this. Even when we sing a song at the end about celebrating and rejoicing in the blood because his blood washes us white. Don't ever forget, what's the so that? What's the so what to the shedding of blood that is so central to our faith? It's the access point to the presence of God. I have two daughters that are adopted. Um, I can't tell you how much I love these girls. And in the end, the process of adoption is costly, no matter how you do it. Through foster care, whether you adopt privately, it's costly in regards to money, it's costly in regards to energy, it's costly in regards to time, it's costly in regards to emotion. You, in a way, you could say, you shed your blood, sweat, and tears for this. But if my girls walked around all the time going, Dad, the cost you pay the cost you paid, and all they talked about. There'd come a moment where I'd sit them down and look them in the face and go, girls, the cost was all worth it because of this. And I'd hug them, and I'd bring them to my face, and I'd go, I love you. This is the point. The point isn't the cost. The point isn't the certificate. The point is the relationship. The exuberance created at the end of this moment is that God chose to dwell with them. So he sets up all the moment of holiness, and then here's the key in verse 10. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, they brought the Ark of the Covenant in under the cherubim. The mercy seat is there. Sacrifices are being offered. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud. Remember when we just mentioned the cloud? The pillar of the cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. When the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled. Do you think the word there means partially filled? Like it was kind of like a mist up in the corner? Filled there actually means filled, the temple of the Lord. And the priests couldn't even perform the services anymore because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. The presence of God filled the temple. Remember the first point? The presence of God is always the point. It has always been the point, and it is always the point. The center of what's happening here is almost like Zillow. Okay, think about this for a minute. So the presence of God is always the point. When we think about what's the difference between a house and a home, the house has been built, the temple's been built. That's what started in 1 Kings 6. Now all the furnishings are being put in. The final moment that they bring in is the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. God, this has all been built so that you would fill it. Would you fill it? When God shows up, now the celebration, the falling prostrate that Solomon begins to do is because the presence of God was always the point. Like Zillow, when you look at Zillow and you're looking at a house, 
Typically, the first picture on Zillow is the structure, the outside picture of the house. What do you then do? It's one of the first things you do. Maybe you look at the cost. You click, let me see inside the house. Here's why, because ultimately you don't want a house. You want a home. So then you begin to look at like, what does it look like inside? And they've staged it, now they do it like through AI, right? That like looks amazing. And you're like, no house actually looks like that. But what they're trying to do is compel you by coming inside the house to begin to experience the home. That looks incredible. When you go to the home and you begin to walk through it inside, the reason you press the button to purchase it isn't because of the structure. It isn't even ultimately become the furnishings, but it's how you imagine what will take place inside the home. The filling it of laughter, the peaceful place you can walk outside with a cup of coffee or a glass of wine later. Ultimately, what you're envisioning is the home and what necessitates a home is the filling it with the presence of the people. Well, the temple is absolutely no different. The point of the tabernacle, the point of the temple was always the presence of God. The presence of God has always been the point. This is why Moses, before there's a tabernacle, before there's a temple, says to God when God calls him, God, if you don't go with me, I'm not going. Because the presence of God was always the point. He knew the only distinguishing mark of the people of God was the presence of God. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. The point, the presence of God. When you get to the New Testament and Paul begins to pray and says to us, gives us clear instruction, be filled with the Spirit, that you wouldn't gratify the lusts of the flesh, but that you would display the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. What is he saying those fruit come from? And all of those fruit are relational fruit. They all come from the presence of God. All the way to the last book of the Bible. When the Spirit of God is speaking to the church at Laodicea, he gives this incredible image that too many of us have been mistaught. And he said, behold, to the church at Laodicea. If we were the church at Laodicea, here's what he's saying. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you open the door, I will come in and feast with you, dine with you, and you with me. Now, where the way we've been mostly mistaught is that verse is used as an evangelistic verse, but he's standing on the door of a church. They're inside. They're singing their songs. They have all the furnishings. The Ark of the Covenant's even there. Here's the problem. God's not. We can do all the stuff. We can have the biggest, glorious house of God with all the right stuff inside and God not be there. That's why I like to say a lot, like, guys, what we need is not songs and a sermon. What we need is God. 
We need God. We, we prepare songs and we prepare sermons to usher us in, to create the space and the place that we would experience a home where God is. The presence of God has always been and is always the point. Now, here's a very interesting thing that's all throughout this chapter in 1 Kings 8, is that the presence of God attends to us when we listen and obey him. When we begin to go, okay, I know what this is about. You really are God. A disciple is always one who listens and who obeys. I didn't grow up in the church, so all these songs I didn't know. So I learned them over time. So there's like this little rhyme of trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's because he's a good father who gives us good words. When we put them into practice, we experience the greatest gift of all, which is the presence of God. Now, here's the next thing. God's presence is always promised. It always has been, and it continues to be. Not just the point, it's promised, and it's a promise given by him him, himself. And whenever God makes a promise, God what? Keeps it. So Solomon begins to pray these prayers. Praise be to the Lord. This is verse 15. The God of Israel, who with his own hand has fulfilled what he promised. Now, the promise was that David wanted to build a temple, but Solomon would build it. He talks about that. But what's the point of the temple? If you've listened at all, what's the point of the temple? The presence of God. So what he's celebrating at this moment, he didn't celebrate. He didn't come to this point of prayer right now, just when the house was built. He didn't even celebrate ultimately when the ark came in. He celebrated when God showed up. So when he prays, God, by your hand, you fulfilled what you promised. He's celebrating this. God has come to dwell with us. So he prays this prayer in verse 27, he says, but will God really dwell on earth? Will the God who spoke the world into existence and upholds it by the word of his power actually dwell with us on earth? Eugene Peterson in the message says, will you actually move into our neighborhood? The presence of God was always the point and God promises it because it's the point. Think about this again through the, the cycle of the Bible. The way it all begins is God creates Adam and Eve and he walks with them in the cool of the morning. God's presence, only when sin enters in does our separation from God, the one we were made by and for, the book of Colossians says. Even if you sit in this room and you go, I don't even think I'm a Christian. I'm gonna say something to you that you may not believe, but I'm telling you, life proves it time and time again. You are made by and for God. Your restlessness, our anxiety and our depression fundamentally is us seeking to reconnect with that which we were made by and for. This is why you can do everything 
in your mind and in your desire to go, something is just off. I need to find a connection. And you think it's career. You think it's a relationship. You think it's a new place. In the end, it's God. Here's the reality of what sin does. It's like a broken down power line. When power lines fall, old power lines, the power and energy that's within the line just goes all over the ground, right? Sparks are flying. The thing can move because the power within it. That's like us, made in the image of God, who've been made in his image by him and for him. We're always looking for the place of connection. And the connection of that power line is back to its source. That's the reality of God. That's what he promises. This is why nothing can get in the way of what God does. God's pursuit of us, pictured in the sacrifices, is because his presence and our experience of his presence was always, always the point. So Solomon begins to pray all these prayers. And he's going, God, thank you. God, thank you. God, thank you. God, thank you. And there's these moments where I stop and I go, this feels like when I positively praise my kids for things I've told them to do 1,900 times. And then they finally do it the one time. And you're like, great job, buddy. You did it. Now, I do that based upon their faithlessness. They never do it. So I'm trying to give positive reinforcement because most of the time I just scream at them. So now it's like I'm positively reinforcing. And you read this, like, is that what Solomon's doing? Is he trying to, like, positively reinforce God who typically never fulfills his promise? No, he's actually trying to positively reinforce himself who doesn't believe in the constant promise-fulfilling nature of God. God, thank you for this. You did it. You do it time and time again. And God's going, that's because I want to be with you. My presence is always the point. I want to create a home with you. I want to dwell with you. So then as the chapter goes on, basically what happens in the bulk of this chapter is Solomon's prayer. It says prayer for dedication. But here's what it is. It's a really human prayer that gets really personal and protective. God's presence, okay, we said here's the first point, is always the point. God's presence is promised time and time again. God's presence is personal and protective. So now that the presence of God showed up, here's what Solomon begins to pray. God, I know time and time again, we're going to screw this up. We are going to sin time and time again. And God, we're in dangerous spots. The world is scary. This is the moment when you say the Old Testament is written to give us hope. If you make it weird, it stays weird. If you make it human, it's really normal. Solomon's like, I'm a screw up God. And I live around a bunch of people that honestly, I think may be more screwed up than me. (laughs) And in the end, life stinks. It's really scary. It feels really dangerous. I don't feel secure at all. So he just begins to pray these prayers. God, when we screw up, Will you hear our prayers and will you forgive us? So here's the rhythm that goes through all of his prayers. God, hear us, which ultimately he's saying is God, see us. God, hear us. God, uphold us. These are direct words in the passage. God, uphold us. God, forgive us. 
So don't turn your face from us, God. Remember, this is even how David prays. Take not your Holy Spirit away. Don't turn away from me, God. Look at us. Hear our pleas for mercy. Stay with us, God. Uphold us. We cannot go forward without your presence. And God, when we screw it up and we do things that get in the way of our presence, forgive us, God. Forgive us, God. Forgive us. Because God, we want you to make your home with us. And then he, another just point we have to bring out. In verse 41, he then brings up in his prayers, he's praying all this, God, let us not screw up. See us, hear us, uphold us. When we sin, forgive us. And then you see what he ultimately knows is happening is he's like, God, we're sitting at a table dining with you. Remember Revelation 3? You showed up for, to be in relationship with us. God, when a foreigner comes into our midst, verse 41, he starts this prayer. When a foreigner comes in, God, see them, hear them, incorporate them. He's saying, God, the point, he gets, the point of Israel was always meant to shine your light to the whole world. So at these moments, you're including us when we shouldn't be included. In these moments when you overcome our sin, God, when a foreigner comes into our midst and doesn't know this stuff, be inclusive of them. Add them to the table. Add them to the feast. Even in the midst of their sin, God, do whatever the foreigner asks of you, he says, so that all the peoples of the earth would know your name and fear you and do your own people Israel, as you do your own people Israel. And may they know that this house that I have built bears your name. What's he saying ultimately? God, this house you built is meant to be a home for all peoples, for all places. So here's the thing about personal and protective. This is where we're gonna land the plane. Solomon's prayers to be seen by God are proved in this passage that God sees us. Our pleas for mercy, the foreigner's pleas for mercy, God hears us. In the midst of our weakness, God upholds us. In our desire for a home, God includes us. Because the truth is, when we sit in this room and we hear about the presence of God, when we're honest with ourselves, we get nervous and begin to talk about these things of like, I'm not worthy of this. Other people don't want to dwell with me. Why would God want to dwell with me? I was unable to keep a marriage together. How's God going to want to stay with me? Other people don't want to live with me. I don't like living with it's hard for me to bear myself in the midst of this. This I don't measure up reality. The book of Hebrews speaks about this whole reality of the temple and the Ark of the Covenant. And then in regards to Jesus says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest. Now listen to this. Jesus is not a high priest. He's not a mediator who's unable to feel sympathy for us in our weaknesses. 
So when we go, God, see us, hear us, he goes, let me take it a step further. I don't just see you and hear you, I feel with you. The word here is literally like the cords of his heart are strung. He cannot just empathize, but sympathize. He knows what it's like to be human and to be weak. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to feel sympathy for our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he didn't sin. He knows it above and beyond. When we give in, he didn't give in. He knows the reality of weakness beyond all of us. He not only sees and hears at the deepest level, he understands you. He understands me. So what? Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Now be honest with me right now. That's not how you feel when we talk about the presence of God. If I said right now, on this little platform is the presence of God, come who may, the reality is you're going to go, God's God, I don't know. But if this throne is a throne of grace, that he understands us in our weakness, and the point was always his presence because he wants us to experience it. He says, come with boldness and confidence because it's a throne of grace and you come so that you might receive mercy and find grace to help you, to help us in our time of need. Now, do we need mercy? Do you have needs? He says, approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence. And when you encounter that grace and mercy, that's when the last point is God's presence is always a part of you. It's home. What we're ultimately seeking is home, and home is God. It is the festival. God's presence is the feast. God's presence is our connection. God's presence is our purpose. Even in the midst of our sin, he conquers our sin so that not just we can sing about his blood, so that we can sing and celebrate his presence, his dining with us. Let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you for your presence. God, to think that the God of the universe wants to dine with us daily, hourly, minute by minute and moment by moment. God, open our eyes to the reality that every moment we're living in you moving in you, breathing in you. God, bring our awareness that we don't just walk and talk and live in you unconsciously. God, we live in you experientially, relationally. God, we pray even now as we partake in this supper where we eat of you, that we would experience your presence. God, I pray right now in really unique and experiential ways, we as a church and we as individuals would encounter the presence of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.